0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today we are going to delve into the life of a man who uh, really shaped the world we live in in very tangible ways. And while he's quite well known in mathematics and physics and even Economics circles, he's not as famous outside of academia as his contemporaries and colleagues, such as J. Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein. Uh, We are talking about the Hungarian-American genius, John von Neumann, and from pure mathematics to applied mathematics to physics to game theory, he turned his intellect to many of the projects that directly affected the course of the 20th century, and that includes the development of the atomic bomb as well as the first computers.
0: John von Neumann was born Neumann Janosch on December 28, 1903, in Budapest, Austria-Hungary. He was a child prodigy. He liked to learn. He retained new information across a wide range of topics. He was studying calculus by the time he was eight, and he could already read classical Greek by that time, and he liked to tell jokes in classical Greek. If that's not the most charming
1: thing, like... I don't, I don't know many learned adults that could do that. And yet here was an eight year old. I sure can't. And his family was considered affluent. Uh, his mother, Marjit Khan had family money, which had come from a prosperous farm equipment company. They actually sort of lived in this big, massive place with his mother's family where her siblings and their children also lived. And it was a, a, by all accounts, a really lovely and sort of amazing uh, way to grow up. And his father, Meeks Neumann, worked in banking. And his parents really encouraged his talents. They were definitely um, fans of education and cultivating intellect. And to make a game out of his photographic memory, they would sometimes select, for example, a page from the phone book. And he would have to look at it and then recite it back from memory. And he was apparently really, really good at it. Uh And John, who later in his life would go by Johnny once he had anglicized his name, was also tutored by the best of Hungary's intellects.
0: He attended the Lutheran Gymnasium, which was considered to be the top high school in Budapest. There he continued to excel in math and language as he had as a child. But when the Hungarian Communist Party seized control of the government under the leadership of Bela Kuhn in 1919, the Neumann family left the country.
1: But because they were quite well off, their story of running from Bela Kuhn's regime, which only lasted for four months, was definitely easier and more comfortable than most refugee stories that you might hear. Uh, They spent time in Vienna, and they also spent time at a resort on the Adriatic. And when they returned to Budapest after Kuhn's four-month rule, John picked
0: right back up and resumed his studies. Initially, he wanted to become a mathematician, but his father was concerned that this would not be a very lucrative career path. He was still passionate about math, though, so instead of abandoning it, he studied chemistry at the same time to ease his father's fears. I
1: sort of love that, where he's like, I'm not willing to give this up, but I hear you. I will also do this thing you think is more lucrative. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, as he was continuing his studies, a mathematical paper he wrote while still in secondary school, titled The Introduction of Transfinite Ordinals, was published in 1923. So today, uh, for people who study mathematics, an ordinal number is commonly defined as a number that defines or identifies a thing's position in a series. That definition is actually the work of teenage von Neumann in this paper.
0: In 1925, he graduated from Zurich's Swiss Federal Institute with a chemical engineering degree. And that same year, his mathematical paper, The Axiomatization of Set Theory, was published. The following year,
1: he earned his Ph.D. in mathematics as Pazman-Peter University. And he had also minored during his Ph.D. in experimental physics and chemistry. So once again, he was just overachieving academically. In ways that make most of us mortals feel very lazy.
0: Yeah. Studying <laughs> math and chemistry at the same time is uh like that makes more sense to me because there is so much of chemistry that requires um some complex math. Mm-hmm. But then uh adding experimental physics, having experimental physics, chemistry, and math. It's like both experimental physics and chemistry rely on math. But all three of those together, to me, become a very large pile of things to study. That is a lot of disciplines.
1: And apparently one of his favorite things was to actually, like, look at textbooks. And you know how they will have diagrams at the back and formulas that are like, you you will need to refer to these to be able to to do some of the work in the book. He would just go back and memorize all of those things so he could just apply them really quickly while he was learning in all of these different disciplines, which is
0: amazing. yeah. As a postdoc, he studied under renowned German mathematician David Hilbert, who was one of the most significant influences on 20th century mathematics. Their relationship as colleagues began after von Neumann's set theory paper was published, and it got him on Hilbert's radar. Just for the sake of saying so, radar wouldn't actually be invented for another decade.
1: Yeah, I was using it as a... um uh, a form of expression. And then I was like, you know, we should point out that radar didn't exist yet just to be safe.
0: <laughs> Considering how many emails we get about decimate, I understand. Yeah.
1: Uh, and it wasn't long before von Neumann was teaching. So from 1927 to 1929, he lectured at the University of Berlin. And he moved from that position to teaching at the University of Hamburg, where he worked until 1930. And while he was teaching, he was also working on a book based on the work that he had been doing with Hilbert. The Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics was published in 1932.
0: This book resolved some issues of quantum mechanics that had been at odds in the work of his predecessors, Schrodinger and Heisenberg. And von Neumann's writing became very influential as a consequence. But his writings on quantum mechanics weren't universally loved or even accepted. While some physicists accepted the idea that von Neumann put forth of indeterminacy of quantum theory, with those scientists including Heisenberg, whose own work on his uncertainty principle was related to it, Albert Einstein, for example, did not accept it. But the
1: important thing was that von Neumann was making a name for himself. He was basically, at this point, a superstar in math circles. And people marveled at all the accomplishments he managed at such a young age. He wrote papers on multiple subjects and made significant marks in a wide range of mathematical fields. And all of this when he was still in his 20s.
0: Von Neumann is also sometimes called the father of game theory. And the inspiration for his work in this area actually came from poker. His paper, Theory of Parlor Games, was published in 1928, and it explored mathematically the rational outcome of games through strategy and how chance and bluffing play into the strategy and outcome. In
1: 1929, von Neumann traveled to the United States as a guest of Princeton University, and the school had asked the 25-year-old mathematician to deliver a lecture on quantum theory. And his talk was so well-received that he was given the opportunity to continue teaching as a visiting lecturer, and he had that job from 1930 to
0: 1933. Von Neumann had just turned 26 when he began teaching at Princeton, and unfortunately his youth was something of a detriment as he didn't seem to fully understand that students needed a little more time to catch up to his mathematical thinking, which was lightning quick there were complaints that he would erase things from the blackboards almost as soon as he had written them down.
1: Yeah, to someone like him who had like this amazing flash memory and could see a thing and then be like, yep, I get that formula and can apply it to various things. Like students were like, we can't, hold on.
0: <laughs> Slow <laughs> um, down. It is
1: great for you. Uh And incidentally, he would actually later say of this time that he felt like it was when his mathematical ability started to drop off. He said later in his life that his mind was not as sharp and able to do advanced calculations in his head starting when he was 26, but that his experience and the more developed understanding of mathematics that he had achieved by that point kind of helped make up the gap.
0: Coming up, we're going to talk about big changes in von Neumann's life. But before we do, we will pause for a little sponsor break. In 1930,
1: the same year that that Princeton visiting lecturer job began, von Neumann got married to a woman named Mariette Kovesi.
0: He started teaching at the Institute for Advanced Study in 1933. The institute, which was founded in 1930, had, in the writing of its founding director, Abraham Flexner, the following mission. Quote, The Institute should be small and plastic that is flexible. It should be a haven where scholars and scientists could regard the world and its phenomena as their laboratory without being carried off in the maelstrom of the immediate. It should be simple, comfortable, quiet, without being monastic or remote. It should be afraid of no issue, yet it should be under no pressure from any side, which might tend to force its scholars to be prejudiced either for or against any particular solution of the problems under study. And it should provide the facilities, the tranquility, and the time requisite to fundamental inquiry into the unknown— its scholars should enjoy complete intellectual liberty and be absolutely free from administrative responsibilities or concerns.
1: I think that probably sounds like nirvana to most people in higher education. (laughs) Sounds wonderful. And when the Institute started its School of Mathematics in 1932, it hired Albert Einstein and mathematical topology innovator Oswald Veblen. And Veblen, incidentally, had been the person who had invited von Neumann to speak on quantum theory at Princeton. So von Neumann joining this mathematics faculty in 1933 really shows how highly he was
0: regarded. We should be clear that while these people carried the title of faculty and technically worked at what was called a school, they weren't teaching. The Institute was and is a place where great minds are hired to think and explore ideas without the trappings of typical academia.
1: Yeah, that's basically what that Flexner... Uh, Bit that Tracy read was about just saying, like, there's no you don't have to worry about publish or perish. You don't have to worry about like students evaluating you. Just come here and think and we will publish, you know, your findings and we will educate the world that way. And of course, during this time that von Neumann was spending in the United States, there was massive political shifts and upheaval happening back home. So when Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany the same year that von Neumann took his job at the Institute for Advanced Study, the mathematician gave up his teaching positions in Berlin officially. They had sort of been still his, but on hold while he visited the U.S. Uh, He spoke openly that he felt that the Nazi regime was setting science in Germany back by a significant margin. In
0: 1935, John and his wife Mariette had a daughter, Marina, but the family didn't stay together long. The couple divorced two years later, and they were on good terms, though, and it was an amicable end. Mariette had fallen in love with a physicist, and von Neumann soon started seeing a childhood sweetheart named Clara Dan. Clara was married when she and John reconnected, but divorced her husband, and she and von Neumann were married in 1938.
1: Yeah, so just for clarity, that all happened in a very short period of time. Like, between 1937 and 1938, their life had ended and they were both remarried. Uh, but they did, they really were quite amicable. They worked together on various things, uh, going forward throughout their lives. They shared custody of their daughter. And, uh, by her accounts, you know, she really had both parents very involved in her life. But in the midst of all of this household shifting, von Neumann became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1937 at the age of 33. And he also continued writing papers and introducing ideas into the mathematics community. His theory of rings of operators eventually came to be known as von Neumann algebras, and he began to work in lattice theory, which is an extension of the study of Boolean algebras. And he made the move from pure mathematics to applied mathematics.
0: In 1940, von Neumann uh, was made a member of the U.S. Scientific Advisory Committee. And in that capacity, he worked at the Maryland Aberdeen Proving Ground Ballistic Research Laboratories. He also served on the Navy Bureau of Ordnance starting in 1941, and he remained in that position until the mid 1950s.
1: Yeah. So all of his uh, ability to do those like incredibly complex calculations, literally in his head, very, very quickly really became important to these different agencies that were developing things like weapons because he could say, like, no, the trajectory will go like this, the explosion will go like this, uh, and he was incredibly accurate. On September 20th of 1943, von Neumann joined the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So uh, as a very brief, glossy version, the Manhattan Project was, of course, the research and development effort of the United States in cooperation with the United Kingdom to produce the first atomic weapons.
0: He had been invited onto the team by J. Robert Oppenheimer. His mathematical skills were critical to the calculations that went into designing and building the first atomic bomb. Von Neumann, along with uh, four other Hungarian intellectuals on the project, which were Theodor von Karman, Leo Zeilar, Eugene P. Wigner, and Edward Teller, came to be known by the nickname The Martians.
1: And there are a number of apocryphal stories about how that that nickname came about. But they kind of all boil down to this same idea, which is that these five men, all from Hungary, were too brilliant to just be mere humans. And they must be Martians disguising themselves as Hungarians to walk among us. Uh, like I said, there are sort of variations on the uh, specifics of that, but that's kind of the joke. Uh, but all of them who were transplants from a Europe that had been severely changed by the rise of Hitler really were uh, willing to do this because they wanted to help in the war effort.
0: For von Neumann, this was not an out-of-the-blue transition from academia to the war effort. Von Neumann had already been assisting the British, applying a, his acquired knowledge of nonlinear physics to analyze shock waves and hydrodynamics, and ultimately to help develop chemical explosives with that knowledge.
1: And once he arrived at Los Alamos, uh, von Neumann was instrumental in determining that an implosion-type design for this particular weapon was a better option uh, rather than a nuclear bomb that would have what was called a gun-type design.
0: He was a primary player in the design of the explosive lenses that were used in implosion-type bomb designs. These so-called lenses were actually a combination of chemicals, some of which burned more quickly than others, and that was designed to control the blast and to achieve a symmetrical explosion.
1: And von Neumann really worked through most of the atomic bomb's most important development stages. And he was one of the people present at the Trinity site when the first atomic bomb was tested.
0: Von Neumann was also one of the people who decided where the first bombs would be dropped. He became part of the Target Selection Committee on in April of 1945. As targets were assessed, it was his work in mathematics that calculated data relating to projecting deaths, the blast size, and detonation locations to maximize the impact. While at one point the committee considered dropping a bomb on the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, von Neumann was one of the voices who argued against it.
1: And next up, we are going to get a little bit into von Neumann's return to game theory and his work in computer science, which we are all benefiting from literally every day at this point. But first, we'll have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. (laughs) Work on the Manhattan Project, von Neumann was also thinking once again of game theory, which neither he nor anyone else had really done any significant work in since his publication of Theory of Parlor Games in 1928. So, 16 years after that paper, in 1944, von Neumann published a book he co authored with Oscar Morgenstern, who was a prominent economist.
0: That book, Theory of Games and Economic Behavior, which incidentally is still in print and can be found in its entirety online made game theory incredibly popular. It is a dense read at more than 600 pages, but it got the intellectual community talking about how game theory could be applied to all kinds of different fields.
1: Yeah, it suddenly became like the hot topic to talk about game theory as it related to everything from like business to leisure and everything in between. Um, Von Neumann was also, as we've been uh, mentioning leading up to this, was also a very key figure in the birth of modern computing. So what's commonly known as ENIAC, which is the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, was a project that von Neumann also had a hand in. After World War II, the U.S. Army asked him to work on that project as a consultant. And how he got the job is actually a really interesting story. So while he was waiting on a train platform, Herman H. Goldstein, who was a mathematician and reserve officer of the Ordnance Department, who was kind of working in a liaison capacity on this project, actually recognized von Neumann, who was, of course, famous in, uh you know, math and physics and economic circles. And he walked up and introduced himself. And the two men had a brief conversation. And the result was that Goldstein asked von Neumann to travel to Philadelphia to work on ENIAC.
0: Von Neumann built on the work of ENIAC's designers, John W. Mauchley and J. Presper Eckert Jr., He shifted its design to make it a programmable machine. And as he worked on the 30-ton behemoth, he also began to see what the next generation of computer could be.
1: And as an aside, uh, the computer-modeled weather forecasts that give us advance warning of hazards and conditions today also owe their genesis to von Neumann because he led a team that harnessed ENIAC's power
0: to create numerical weather forecasts. Von Neumann had a concept of a computer architecture where a program and data are stored in the same memory. That idea was the first of its kind. And once he concluded his work on ENIAC, he returned to the Institute for Advanced Study and campaigned for a computer to be built with this structure. The Institute's computer also used binary arithmetic rather than decimal numbers.
1: And initially, this really seemed preposterous when he proposed the idea that would eventually manifest as the Institute's electronic computer project. Like, they had nothing of the kind. They were all doing their intellectual projects on their own. And while some of von Neumann's colleagues thought it was a problematic concept and would just be a waste of resources, there were others who supported and really fully championed it. And eventually, this uh, electronic computer project was set up in the basement of one of the Institute's buildings, Fold Hall.
0: At the same time, the Army wanted additional computers built after the war, and based on von Neumann's work, which had begun when ENIAC was not yet completed, the Electronic Discrete Variable Automatic Computer, or EDVAC, was built at the Moore School of Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, just as ENIAC had been. The EDVAC was built using von Neumann's so-called logical design, which he laid out in an initial report published on June 30th, 1945.
1: And we're going to read a little bit from that because it it so elegantly lays out what a computer is. Uh, He described in his introduction exactly what is meant by the term automatic computing system. So, quote, An automatic computing system is a usually highly composite device which can carry out instructions to perform calculations of a considerable order of complexity, e.g. to solve a nonlinear partial differential equation in two or three independent variables numerically. The instructions which govern this operation must be given to the device in absolutely exhaustive detail. They include all numerical information which is required to solve the problem under considerations. Initial and boundary values of the dependent variables, values of fixed parameters, constants, tables of fixed functions which occur in the statement of a problem. These instructions must be given in some form which the device can sense, punched into a system of punch cards or on a teletype tape, magnetically impressed on steel tape or wire, photographically impressed on motion picture film, wired into one or more fixed or exchangeable plug boards, this list being by no means necessarily complete. All these procedures require the use of some code to express the logical and the algebraic definition of the problem under consideration, as well as the necessary numerical material. Once these instructions are given to the device, it must be able to carry them out completely and without any need for further intelligent human intervention. At the end of the required operations, the device must record the results again in one of the forms referred to above. The results are numerical data. They are a specific part of the numerical material produced by the device in the process of carrying out the instructions referred above.
0: As he continued to explain his logical structure of a computer that would be faster and more powerful than its predecessor, von Neumann opted to use biological similes, likening various components of the larger whole to organs. This writing is the basis of the modern computer, which is now called von Neumann architecture.
1: Von Neumann's efforts in computing during this time, particularly the work that he published about their design did not go over well with Mausley and Eckert, who were applying for a patent on their design. You recall they designed ENIAC. And there's actually a really fantastic patent wars battle about early computers that would make an excellent episode all on its own one day, but for the scope of this one, it is enough to know that von Neumann publishing all of his information on structure around the world, and that work being picked up by various entities who were developing their own computers, was enough to be really problematic for the ENIAC designers' plans to get a patent.
0: After his work with the Army, von Neumann also worked with the U.S. Air Force and the RAND Corporation. At the time, the two entities were collaborating on developing a nuclear strategy, and von Neumann and his game theory became important to that process. He was a proponent of striking the Soviets with a hydrogen bomb to put a swift end to their new efforts in nuclear warfare. While more pacifist views ultimately prevailed, von Neumann is credited with establishing the concept of mutual assured destruction as a conceptual strategy. He became
1: a member of the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project in 1950, and he remained part of that project for five years. In
0: 1954, von Neumann was appointed to the Atomic Energy Commission, which served to control the uses of nuclear technology in both weaponry and non-military uses. He served on the commission until 1956.
1: And von Neumann was also awarded the Enrico Fermi Award in 1956. And that same year, President Eisenhower also presented him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In
0: 1955, while working on the Atomic Energy Commission, von Neumann was diagnosed with bone cancer. He died on February 8, 1957, at the age of 53 in Walter Reed Army Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland.
1: And he had spent his final days in a suite there. Like, he really had, like, this large area. And that was in part due to respect for who he was and what he had contributed, but it was also a matter of national security. So according to his daughter's memoir, numerous high-ranking military officials came to see him at the end to get as much information from him about his top secret projects as possible before he died so that the information did not go with him. And additionally, a rotation of eight airmen served as security, making sure von Neumann didn't tell any military secrets to anyone other than those with top secret clearance while he was under the influence of medication or just from exhaustion from fighting the cancer. In
0: 1960, the computer he had developed for the Institute of Advanced Study was donated to the Smithsonian.
1: And uh, what really emerges when you read about von Neumann's personality is, to me, perhaps the most fascinating thing about him. Because while he was clearly a genius, he was also pretty modest about those gifts. Uh, despite an impressive list of accomplishments, he also felt that he had never lived up to what people had expected of a man of his talents and natural intellect.
0: And while the heady and intensely intellectual nature of his work might lead to the assumption that von Neumann was a solitary, nerdy type of person toiling away at his formulas, he was anything but that. He was very outgoing, very likable, and he managed to navigate the egos and personalities of academia while being liked and admired by his colleagues. Uh But it makes me chuckle because I... I recall professors of mine talking about having what they termed knockdown drag out fights as faculty at faculty meetings. Oh yeah, I have I
1: have <laughs> we both have friends in academia and I hear like some very dramatic argument type things. He didn't seem to have those.
0: Yeah, someone with a natural talent like his could have easily developed a superiority complex, but it really seems like von von Neumann did not.
1: Yeah, it I get the sense that he was very aware that his his thinking capacity was at a level above most other people, but he didn't seem, um, to, to make that like a thing. He didn't, that wasn't what defined him. Uh, he did actually though bump into some problems with colleagues, particularly later when he was working in applied mathematics due to the fact that he would take some, someone's idea, like he would hear an idea and because he was so smart, he would often really quickly leapfrog over what they had figured out and have ideas about how it could all be solved and how to implement the thing that they had thought of initially. And to him, this was just a matter of solving problems and exploring ideas. But to the people that he was mentally leapfrogging in the process, it was really frustrating. I imagine he never understood that point of view because it never happened to him. Like he was always so far ahead of everybody else. No one else could do the same thing back to him.
0: Von Neumann's daughter, Maria von neumann Whitman wrote her memoir entitled The Martian's Daughter in 2012. And in this memoir, she relates his proclivity for expressing his emotional side through letters. Through his writing, he advised her as a young woman about to graduate from college in the 50s to postpone her planned marriage. He was concerned that she would become tied to a housewife's life and not fulfill her own life's potential if she did not put it off.
1: Uh, yeah, this really jumped out to me and was very striking because many fathers of that era, facing their own mortality, this was basically written from his deathbed, would probably urge their daughter, like, yes, yeah, settle down, you will have security. But von Neumann prized intellectual pursuit above such things. He believed that everyone had a moral obligation to use their intellect to its fullest possibility. And he wanted that for his daughter as well as anyone else.
0: Yeah, well, and I think, like, we're not at all casting disparagement on people who choose to stay no. home and have families today. But at the time this was so much out of the norm for young women. Uh that it's striking that that, that was the, the the tacky tick on it. Biographer Norman McRae wrote of von Neumann, quote, the cheapest way to make the world richer would be to get lots of his like.
1: Yeah, that uh seemed like such a uh Nice way to kind of wrap up von Neumann's life. It's interesting because obviously he had a hand in some incredibly destructive things. I think his motivations were, you know, as we mentioned, largely due to the fact that he had had been uh, in Europe when he saw things going terribly poorly and wanted to change it. That's one of those things that can always be debated. Uh, but he strikes me as such a fascinating man. There's some really fun Uh, footage that I stumbled across of him where he did an appearance talking to school children. And he has this really beautiful Hungarian accent, and he seems so sweet. And this one kid is asking him, like, you're inventing all these new things and computers, and but who's going to run them? And he's so like, well, we have to start training people. We have to start training young people when they are young, because if we wait until they're adults and ask them to get interested, they'll never know if they have natural talent for it or not. We will have wasted years of development. And he just had such a, like, complete proponent's angle on educating kids which he had inherited of course from his parents and their parents before them who had all Mm -hmm. really promoted education uh and it was just very charming so uh yeah that's john von neumann who fascinates and delights me because you have some listener mail i do i do i do i do uh this listener mail is another lovely gift from our listener april And she writes, Hello, Holly and Tracy. Howdy from West Texas. While visiting the Molly Brown house in Denver last month, I found these handkerchiefs that look perfect for podcast royalty. To me, the unsinkable Margaret Brown captures the spirit of stuff you missed in history class with her strength, can-do attitude, and excellent sense of style. I was inspired after listening to the show about the wasps to visit their museum in Sweetwater. I made sure to stop at the Wishing Well, where graduates tossed in coins, and now where they meet at the beginning of their reunions. It was an honor to walk around the fields where these remarkable women once flew. I made sure to send their likeness of the roll doll inspired Disney-designed mascot, Fifinella. Oh, it's a cute little that she sent us. Uh, and as you have probably already guessed, I have the deepest respect and admiration for your wonderful podcasts. Uh, one topic I wish to discuss is the occasional complaint about the volume of shows about women. To me, the podcast is not called Stuff You Already Got from History Class. <laughs> and generally, the lesson, uh, the lesser-told stories are about the unsung and marginalized. I love hearing about the lives of inspiring people that make me say, wow. Thanks to you, I have the chance to be amazed several times a week. Three cheers to the history ladies. That's so sweet. Thank you so much, April. And she wrote this on adorable uh, stationery with a kitty on it. Uh, so thank you, these... Uh, handkerchiefs that she sent are these beautiful, delicate little lace handkerchiefs. I love them. Uh, we also got some bookmarks from her from the uh, Wasp Museum. Super sweet. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History, And you can find us at Uh You can also visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Type in anything you like in the search bar and you will come up with a wealth of options to explore and learn from. You can go to our site, as I said, mistinhistory.com to find back episodes of every single uh, episode of the podcast that has ever existed as well as show notes on any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on together. Uh, so we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.